The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. There is inside your bulletin a little uh, off-colored note sheet there that you can use to to follow along, take some notes. Uh, On the back side, there is a bit of a summary and some questions that you might want to take a look at and consider later on the day today and answer for yourself about the message and what we are talking about this morning from God's Word. I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then I'm going to flip over to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12 over there as well. So let's read, and then we're going to pray and and, uh, get into God's Word together. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now take your Bibles and flip over to Philippians, just a couple of pages away. And we're going to read chapter 3 and verses 4 to verse 12. This is a little brief biography, description of Paul and his uh, change from being outside of Christ, and now his life and living inside Christ. And his, you can see the heart of Paul in these verses here. Verse 4 says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and may be found him, sorry, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, as we come before the Word of God open before us, we pray, O God, that the Spirit of God that inspired and moved these men of God to write these words, we pray that He would open our hearts and our minds to hear what You would have to say to us. And Father, it is in faith that we ask this morning that You would come and speak to us to the very depths of our souls that we would hear the living God speaking in our hearts. Father, we pray also that you would move us not just to hear these words, but to put them into action, to do the things that you have called us to do. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we hit chapter 3, the book kind of takes a bit of a twist and turn that Paul has spent two chapters. In chapter 1, he has given this great explosion of praise. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in chapter 2, Paul has explained and expounded the glory of God's grace to make us new creatures for his new community. And then he starts chapter 3, and it starts off as a prayer. He bows his knees, and then he just sort of stops and switches gears, and he gives us a little bit of recounting of his grace, God's grace, in Paul's life. And then he switches again in verse, above verse 5 there, to give us an expanded description of the mystery of Christ. And then he switches back again to another recounting of God's grace in his life as he talks about how God's grace was given to the least of all saints that he might be a minister of the gospel, a preacher of the gospel, and a teacher of truth. And finally he reverts back to continuous prayer which he started in chapter 3 and verse 1. And that's at 3, the end of, or from 4, 3 and, and verse 14 and onwards. Sorry. So, from that point onwards, once he finishes his prayer, at the end of verse chapter 3, he goes into chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and begins to explain and lay out how it is that we are to live life as new creatures in Christ, gathering together as a body, a new community in Christ Jesus. As I sat and I wrestled this week in my study trying to go, what is the central idea? What is he trying to give us? In this passage, 3, 1 to 13. 
And I wrestled, thought, well, is, he, is it really an expanded description of the mystery of Christ? Because most of what he said here about the mystery, he's repeating from what he said earlier. He's just giving us a little more information. I thought, well, that may be part of it. I think it is, and we will look at that later. But did you notice... In the passage, he gives us, I believe there are six or five or six different descriptions of himself. Paul the writer, he calls himself in verse 1, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In verse 5, he calls himself as one of the holy apostles. We know from chapter 1 and verse 1 that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He makes it mentioned over and over in his letters. He is an apostle. Did you notice in verse number 7, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace to him. And then he says in verse number 8, he says, I am the very least of all saints who has received grace. And then he goes on to talk about how he's going to preach and teach and so on. And then in verse 13, he talks a little bit. He just gives a hint about his sufferings and the tribulations that he is enduring as a suffering servant of Christ. And you realize, you know what, he's actually telling us a little bit about himself. And what I realized as I wrestled with this all through this week was what he's doing is he's given us what it means to be a believer to be saved by God's grace in chapter 2. He's given us what it means to be a member of the new community of faith in the end of chapter 2. And before he dives into what it means to live as that new community, he gives us a little bit of a hint about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. It means that we are maybe, like him, a prisoner of Christ. It means that we have a role and a calling within that new community. His role, his calling was an apostle. Ours might be pastor or teacher or elder or whatever it is in the body of Christ. We're all got a, play, a part to play. He shows us a little bit of his heart as he talks about the prisoner of Christ and not not worrying about his sufferings for the sake of Christ. We see a little bit of the heart of Paul in all this. And the question that came to my mind, I was kind of compelled to ask as I worked and as I studied, was what happened to Paul? Or should I say, what happened to the man named Saul of Tarsus to take him from what he was back in Acts chapter 7 and 8 and brings him all the way to where you read about his life in the later parts of Acts and 2 Corinthians and Philippians 3. And it's a radically different person that you see there. Not only is his name changed slightly from Saul to Paul, now he is a totally different person. What moved him? You see in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, he's breathing out threats and murder. There's a, there's a very angry man there. He was a Christian hating man in Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. He was a church persecuting man in the same verse. He was a wealthy citizen of Rome, not just given or buying his citizenship. He was actually born as a citizen of Rome. He would have meant some wealth. He was a Pharisee. He was schooled at the highest school you can go to in Gamaliel's school. He was a tradesman making tents out of leather. He would have had a certain amount of prestige and wealth and personality and place in the society he lived in. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews of Philippians 3. That means that Paul could go back and he could trace all the way back through the exile, right back in the history of Israel, right back to the chief, the fathers of the tribes. 
His lineage was absolutely pure. He was a tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was one who had dedicated his whole life to the study of the law of God. He was zealous for the law. And, the, and he says himself in Scripture, regarding the keeping of the law, I was blameless. This is no ordinary man. And this is an angry man. This is one who is zealous for God and going out and literally seizing Christians, dragging them into prison, persecuting the church. So what is it? What was the radical change that went through Paul's life that took him from that man to this one we read now? We see him as a prisoner of Christ, suffering for the gospel. You read it, 2 Corinthians 11, I believe it is, and he gives a long description of all the things he goes through in the ocean for a night and a day, flogged five times, beaten this way, over here, stresses at night, stresses at day, worrying about the church, all this stuff that he endured. What was the change? From persecuting Christ to following Christ. From imprisoning Christians to being a prisoner of Christ. From being a persecutor of Jesus' disciples to being a disciple and an apostle who was himself persecuted. From being a Pharisee set apart to the law of God to being an apostle set apart to the gospel of God. From being an enemy of the faith to a preacher of the faith. From being a devout and zealous adherent to Judaism as a committed disciple. Now he is part of a new community of both Jews and Gentiles together. That was absolutely abhorrent to the old, the New Testament Jews. What was the difference? Brothers and sisters, this is what it is. He mentions it three times in our passage. He talks in verse 2 of the grace of God which was given to me for you. He talks in verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me. And he talks again in verse 8 about the grace that was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's grace. It's grace that saved him and it's grace that changed him and transformed him from being that angry man on the road to Damascus to being this suffering apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ willing to suffer and be imprisoned for his faith. It was the grace of God. But here's the question I was forced to consider. Why are there not more Pauls in our day? Now he said, just a minute, Paul was an apostle. He saw the revelation of the risen Christ. Yes, but you know what else Paul was? He was an ordinary man, just like you and me. He had the Spirit of God in him, just like you and I have. He was a man who had the Word of God available to him. Yes, he spoke into, into existence scriptures beyond the Old Testament, filling up the New Testament with books of writings by his name, inspired by the Spirit of God to write. We have his writings. He was an ordinary man. Why does it seem so often, and I'll start with my own life and the lives of so many Christians I know, that the slim difference between us and the world is this. We confess Christ, but we live almost exactly the same as the world. Paul didn't live like the world. He was so radically different that they couldn't stand him. So they kept putting him in jail and beating him and flogging him, driving him out of town, trying to get rid of him. The answer, I believe, is discipleship. Or to be more accurate, the answer is a lack of discipleship in the day in which we live. 
You say, what is discipleship? Well, we're going to look this morning on the little note sheet. And funny, you got 11 characteristics of discipleship. No, we won't go through all 11. We're just going to touch on the first three and four, and we'll just briefly touch on the rest of them, and you can look them up for yourself. The answer is discipleship. But the problem is the 20th century church that we live in has preached grace to save without grace to follow. If you, we, we know that verse in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, don't we? For it is by grace that we are saved. For by No, sorry. For it is by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And the verse goes on in verse 10 to talk about the good works that God has prepared for us to do them. You see, we have this idea in our heads that it is grace that saves us, and we can go on living exactly the way we were. It doesn't work that way. We've preached and emphasized faith in Christ without following Christ. We've encouraged faith without obedience. And I don't do this, but if I asked you this morning, how many of you here would consider yourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, how many of you could actually raise your hand? Don't do it if you can, but just think of the question. Do you see yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Could you, would you raise your hand? We've used terminology in the church that encourages belief without equivalent action. We use terms like believer and Christian instead of disciple and follower. You're saying we shouldn't call ourselves Christians? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should understand what it means to be a Christian and see what the Bible teaches about a calling to follow Christ. We've preached and ministered like this, and it's produced in this world we live in a consumer-oriented Christianity. So we see Christ is here to provide me with a fitting crown to my mediocre to good life. Finish off your life by adding Christ. You've got everything else in this world. All you need now is Christ. You've got health. You've got wealth. You've got prosperity. You know, if you just add Christ to the whole thing, you'll have a complete and perfect life. That's not what Jesus came here to do. Christ suffered and paid for my sin to give me forgiveness, but we stop right there. All we want is forgiveness, but not what He called us to. Christ died so I could be free from guilt. So now having acquired that freedom from guilt without any accompanying call to live for Christ in self-denial, submission, and obedience, the church has become a place where others meet my needs. So I come looking to see what the church will provide me. And I look and say, well, you know, ABC Church over there, they have a great Sunday school and they have a live music program, but they don't have great teaching. Oh, well, you know, that church over there, they've got really good teaching, but the Sunday school is not so great, so we won't go there. Well, you know, that church over there, and we start lining up churches almost like supermarkets. That one's got a sale on meat. That one's got a sale on veggies. I don't like fruit. I'll go over there. That one's got this. And we start putting the churches up and examining, leaving, and moving from church to church in a never-ending quest to find the perfect church that meets all of my needs. We preach faith without obedience. We preach come to Christ and not follow Christ. And that's the end result. That's why we see people hopping and bouncing in and out of churches all over the place now. If I don't like the offering of services at this church, I go to church shopping to find what I like. Church ceases to be a place where we meet with God and hear God speak to us and simply a place where I've found the right blend of music style, pep talk sermon, comfy chairs, and if possible, good coffee. 
I don't want to be a hammer, 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 hammer. That's not my intention. But looking at the church, looking and seeing what's happening in this society, you probably all heard the vote and the way it went on Wednesday. Already a bill is proposed into Parliament that will effectively try and reduce the possibility of people who don't like homosexual marriage from serving them through their businesses so they'll have no right to refuse to provide services for a wedding. If you haven't seen the writing on the wall, it's there in black and white. Persecution and tribulation are coming to face the church. If we are a church, if we are Christianity that operates on consumer orientation, getting what I want and what I need, not worrying about following Christ, just being satisfied with my sins forgiven, a home in heaven, who cares about the rest, and move on, we will fall the moment that real persecution comes. And I believe with all my heart, as I wrestled through this this week, I just, you know what, there was a piece of me that, you know, I just want to talk about what's necessary to stand when it comes. I got a, a text message from one of you this week. The Lord used it to say, you know what, do that. Use Paul's illustration. We're just going to take a couple of phrases out of chapter 3 here to show you. This is a man who knew what discipleship was and he was willing to endure the persecution and tribulation that Christ promised us would come and follow Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't see the same radical change occurring in people because we have forgotten that the call to come to Christ in its biblical proportion is a call to fellowship. It's a to follow ship fellowship and following with Christ. It's a call to discipleship. The practice of biblical discipleship, I just want to give you a sneak peek in case you're wondering what our focus, what our vision is as Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church for 2018. You're going to hear a lot more about this in the next QBM and the AGM. It's all about discipleship. Both becoming disciples of Christ and making disciples for Christ. Those two things going hand in hand. True faith in Christ is to obediently follow Christ. True faith in Christ is to be changed into Christ-like people. So how did that all fit in Ephesians 3, 1 to 13? Now, I've already given you those prisoner, apostle, minister, the least of all saints, and all those things. So using the illustration of Paul, a man whose life was radically changed by his discipleship to Christ, I want us to look this morning at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to call all of us from here to the back door to be disciples of Christ, not just believers, not just Christians and those terminology, but biblically followers of Jesus Christ and disciples. So in order to do that, we're going to leave Ephesians and look at that some other texts in the Gospels to see and hear Jesus' call. So take your Bibles, flip over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, probably the classic difficult text on discipleship, but it puts some of the hardest calls. We read two passages, Mark 8 and Luke 14. Both have some very difficult things to say that Jesus said about discipleship and about following him. This is what he says. Verse 34 of chapter 8 of Mark, he says, And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, 
If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Now take your Bibles and just flip forward a bit. Luke chapter 14, we'll read a passage from there as well. We're going to focus basically on verse 34 of Mark 8, but we'll read these for context. Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. Luke 14, verse 25 to 35. This is again Jesus saying, A great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he builds to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore... No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even, sorry, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thirteen characteristics. Thirteen truths about discipleship sitting right there in front of you. And I want to look at the first three and four and go through it together. Verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. So flick back over to Mark 8. He summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The first one is this, coming after Jesus Christ. What does it mean to come after Jesus? You say, well, it means to follow, obviously. I think, yeah, you're right. It does mean to follow. But I think it means something else, a little more deeper than just plain follow at this point. I think it means to be going in one direction and to do a complete turnaround and go back in the other direction to follow after Christ. I almost imagine my mind's eye a great big road. And Jesus is walking down the road and he's going in one direction. All the crowds of the world are going the other way. And he calls out to them, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And he's walking against the crowd. And the reality is in order to come after Jesus, there has to be a turning around, a turning away from one direction and turning around to go in the other direction. And what it means to come after Jesus is turn away from sin in repentance of sin and turn in faith, turn trusting the one who is calling us and stepping out in faith behind him and following where he leads. 
It's that moment we hear the gospel call and we sense within our heart that urge, that desire to have Christ, to know Him. We've seen Him as He walked against the crowds. We've seen all that He lived, all the beauty of His, of His holiness, His sinless life. We've heard the gospel message about Jesus dying on a cross and we've heard the gospel call and in our hearts is that desire, I've got to have this. I can only give you my own story, remembering sitting on a bunk and hearing that message. And in my heart, there was just a desire there. I've got to have this Jesus and going the other way. It's to turn away from sin and turn towards Christ in faith. But it's infinitely more than just being forgiven from sin. It's a desire to be with Christ, to follow Him, to be like Him, to know Him deeply and intimately. It's leaving behind everything and everyone to follow Christ. Jesus is walking along the beach. Disciples are sitting in their boat. They're washing their nets, making the nets ready for the next night's fishing. And He calls out, follow me. And two of them put down their nets and they get up out of the boat and they walk across the beach, leave everything behind and they follow Jesus. They're leaving behind their livelihood, their family, their business. They're leaving it all because they want to be with Jesus. The call to come after Jesus is a call to leave it all behind. He's saying we should quit our jobs, leave our families and our homes, just walk out there in the middle of the street and start walking away. No. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's the willingness to leave those things behind. If they're going to go in a sinful direction, I won't go that way. I will go the way that Christ calls me to go. I'll follow him whatever the cost may be. Jesus called Matthew from his tax collector's desk and he left it behind to follow Jesus. He calls us to leave behind our striving for self, for wealth, for health and for prosperity, to leave it behind the pursuit of the world's values. Leave them alone and follow Christ. One of the great tragedies is the mindset of the world that has steadily creeped into the church. I've got to have all the world's goods and toys and trinkets and bits and pieces. I'm not joking, I say that to my own shame. How quickly we are to look for the newest, latest, bestest, topest, fanciest, whatever it is we're looking for, to put someplace to impress people we don't like and houses we can't afford and all the rest of that stuff. And Jesus is saying, look, leave it behind to follow me. He calls us to leave behind the pursuit of the world's values. It's not just to be free from guilt. It's not just to have the reassurance of heaven after we die, but to be with Him, to know Him. In Mark chapter 7, I believe it is, He calls His disciples up onto a mountaintop and He begins to list out this one, this one, this one. You're going to be my 12 disciples. And the purpose which He called them, number one, was to be with Jesus. Do you notice Paul? Do you remember what he said? That I may know Him. I've counted everything in the world that was something to me to be absolute garbage and rubbish that I might know Christ. I'll give up whatever it takes to be with Him, to know Him. It's like being in a marriage, only so much better. Your wife loves your husband loves to spend time with you, to sit with you. Sometimes some of the sweetest moments in your marriage are when you sit down side by side, maybe looking at a beautiful scene. You don't say a word. 
You're just there with that other person and there's an intimacy, a relationship, a bond that builds between you as you are with that person and you're enjoying the fellowship and the company of that person. It's exactly the same with Christ. He called us, first of all, to be with Him and it means leaving everything behind to be with Christ. So when the world's values call and Christ calls, come and spend time with me, what is our answer? Do we take time to be with Jesus? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. He gave up everything. The word in the Greek, to be perfectly crude about it, is the word for human refuse. I regard everything as that compared to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's willing to die for the sake of Christ. He was willing to be a prisoner of Christ that he might know Christ. He was willing to endure great suffering that he might know Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us, number one, to come after me. If you want to come after me, then he goes into what it will cost. The second thing is this, denying self. Choosing to seek Christ's will ahead of my own will. It's not I, but Christ. That's our response. Is this easy? No, it's not. It's very difficult. But you know what? We have the grace of Christ. It's not dependent on you and I and our own striving. It's God's grace working in us. It's God, the Bible says in Philippians 2, verses 11 and 12, or 12 and 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His own good pleasure. What's that mean? That means when we hear that call to come and spend time with Christ, it's the grace of God working in us to give us the desire and it's our stepping out in obedient response to that to spend time with Him, to know Him, to be with Him, to enjoy that relationship together. It's denying self. It's choosing to seek Christ's will ahead of my own. Denying self is to say no to my desires and to strive to continually and always be seeking His will to obey it. You know one of the most marvelous things, amazing things that Jesus ever said? I don't speak of my own account. I only say the words the Father gives me to do. He said it's finished, meaning what? Meaning everything the Father had given him to do, he had finished and completed it. He was fully obedient to Christ all of his life, to his Father all of his life. It's what Paul urged in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's to deny ourselves all the things that we could have and put ourselves up on the altar, the offering, and say, here it is, O God, consume it for your glory. And you know, it's not easy. I wish I could sit here and say, oh, it's just so simple. All you got to do is A, B, C. It's not. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a wrestling for the rest of your life as you tear with that tension in you to either follow your own will or follow Christ and constantly say, not my will, but Christ be done. Remember Jesus in the garden? He's praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If it's possible, O God, take this cross from me. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the same idea denying self and saying yes to God, no to sin. Some of you I was telling last week, we, um, we found this movie. Uh, we were looking for Christian movies to watch, and we found this website that has all these uh, free-to-download Christian movies. We found one called In His Steps. 
Some of you may remember, uh, if you're as old as me, you remember little uh, Sunday school comic books. They had in this episode one of the little stories they tell. I might have mentioned this last week. If I did, I'm sorry, but you'll hear it again. Uh, guy walks into church in the middle of a service, and he says, up the front, and he says, I don't understand you Christians. You keep talking about following God. You keep talking about obedience to Christ. You keep talking about following Jesus and doing all the things that Jesus said. I'm a homeless man. I've been walking through this city for a week now looking for someone who will help me out. And all of you, not all of you, many of you in this room have turned me away. And he falls down, collapses, and dies. And the story is written back in the 1800s. And, and the pastor says, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to ask a bunch of you to commit with me to asking one simple question for the rest of your, your life. Before you make any major decision. It was a year, actually, not your life. And say, what would Jesus do? And you may have heard all the paraphernalia came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. What would Jesus do? Bracelets and T-shirts and all that. What would Jesus do? I kept meeting young people, and they'd say, oh, yeah, but what would Jesus do? And I'd say, you know what, guys? That's pure speculation. You're speculating. What would Jesus do? i got a better question for you. What did Jesus say? That's not speculation. That's actual fact. You can go back to the Scriptures and see what Jesus said. So don't get caught up in always asking, what did Jesus what would Jesus do? But what did Jesus say? Because when we understand what Jesus said, it helps govern our thinking and drive for what we would do in response to situations in front of us to enable us to deny ourselves and choose for Christ. I did tell a story last week, didn't I? Yeah, I can see a whole bunch of you smiling. So I, I can know I know I did. Well, that's okay. Listen, it's not about choosing for me as long as it doesn't offend Christ. It's about choosing for His will in my life and putting my own will aside. Disciples are willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. I hear people say a lot, you know, I have this illness, this disease. Well, it's, it's my cross to bear. You know, I have this awkward situation at work. Well, that's, that's my cross to bear. Well, I have some news for you. That's not your cross to bear. That's not what that verse means at all. That verse doesn't mean that cancer is not your cross to bear. Diabetes is not your cross to bear. A snoring husband is not your cross to bear, as difficult as that may. Unruly and rebellious children are not your cross to bear. And you can go on. I've heard all kinds of descriptions about what that cross is. But it totally twists the idea of the verse. Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, it's about taking up that cross willingly every single day and following behind me. And in Scripture, the cross always has to do with the idea of death, dying to something. And what Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to come and be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself, choose for God, not self, and pick up your cross, which means you're going to have to deny yourself those things that cause separation and hindrance in our relationship. Think of it this way. Um, you get married. Uh, you married this wonderful wife. Three long months go, three short months go by, and you're enjoying that marriage time. One day you get a phone call. It's an old girlfriend or boyfriend. They've had no idea that you're married. And they're interested in reviving the old relationship. And so they say, hey, hey, what, why don't we go out for dinner and a movie next Friday night? Now, let me tell you something. If you give in to that request and go out to the movie with that old flame from years gone by, I can assure you 
not from personal experience, I'll say that much, I can absolutely assure you that you will hinder your marriage relationship in a really big way. You go out to the movie and the dinner with that old flame, you come back home that evening and you'll have a discussion with your new spouse. They will do the talking and you will do the listening as they explain to you in no uncertain terms that you may not have and kindle an old flame now that you're in this new marriage relationship. And it's a funny story. I get it. It's, it's good. But here's the thing. Your relationship with Christ is exactly like that marriage relationship. And when he says you deny yourself and you take up your cross and follow me, what he says is you put to death every single day the things that will hinder your relationship with me. So the old sinful habits that come up, you realize that that sinful habit is going to hinder my relationship with the living God. If I allow it to remain, it will hinder me from having close, intimate fellowship with my Savior and my God. Just as surely as going out on a date with an old flame will hinder intimacy in your marriage in a really big way. Only the difference is that it's even more hindered by Christ. And you, when you allow sin to remain. Listen, the gospel call to come and follow Jesus is not a call just to come and be forgiven. It's a call to come be forgiven by faith in God, through God's grace. And it's a calling to follow Him, to go after Him, to be like Him, to put aside the things that will hinder my relationship with God and walk behind Him. Jesus is calling us to follow him to a lifetime of daily dying to sin, dying to the world's mindset and thinking, a daily refusing to have anything to do with those things that displease our Lord and our Master. If we return to the old sinful habits, if we allow sin to regain a foothold in our lives, we will hinder our walk with the Lord. No, Christ called us to follow him by faith, and he calls us to follow him, taking up our cross daily. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel had an enemy they were always doing battle with, battle people called Amalek. And one of the things that God said was that I will always have war with Amalek. Why did he say that? He said it because in all through their lives they would have fight against him. And it's an illustration of us in Sorry, in our following Christ, we will always have to do battle with sin in our lives. It's just a part of following Jesus. And you know what? Sin doesn't give you a break and let you off for a little bit. It comes back again and again and again. And it's every single day as we get up, we take up our cross and determine before God that we will fight against that sin and put it off that our relationship with God might not be hindered. Moving on. Fourthly, it's following Christ. What does it mean? Now, in the early of the first century, rabbinic schools had a particular way of teaching disciples. The rabbis would go out and they would choose and select disciples, much like Jesus got all those disciples together up on the mountaintop. And he said, this one, this one, this one, and this one, you're going to be with me and you're going to be my disciple. They would choose their disciples. Jesus said of us, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that part of that choosing, part of that, that discipleship process was the disciples learnt the words of their master. 
They would hear them spoken. Maybe they would jot them down, but they would learn them by memory so that as time went on, they would go out from their gathering with the Master and they would make other disciples, other new disciples, and teach them the words of the old Master. That wasn't unique to Jesus and the Twelve. That was common amongst rabbinic schools all over Judaism. Does it sound familiar? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all things whatsoever I've told you, to obey all those things. It's exactly the same. And following Christ is this. We learn Christ's words. We understand what Christ has called us to do. We learn and we imitate Christ's lifestyle. I know I hammered this point home last week, and I'm going to risk the problem of repetition by saying it again. Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. He was a man who gave himself to prayer. He knew the Word of God, and he was a man who gave himself to prayer. He gave great times. He got up in the middle of the night and spent hours alone with his Father in prayer. Listen, we as disciples of Jesus Christ, called to follow him, are to be men and women of prayer, following our Savior. Disciples learn and imitate Jesus' ministry, the way he taught people, the way he worked with people. I love one thing it says about Jesus. It says that he was full of both grace and truth. I don't know what you're like. We always tend to go one way or the other. We're very quick to give grace a place and put down truth. Well, you know, I'll be gracious and I won't really bring up the truth. Or some of us, maybe even me, are a lot more, will put truth up and let grace go down. So I'm so quick to come in there and smash away with the truth and maybe crush and hurt somebody instead of balancing it. But the beautiful thing about Jesus when he ministered to people was he dealt in a perfect balance, a perfect blend of both grace and truth. And the beautiful thing about Jesus was he never once sacrificed grace for truth. And he never once sacrificed truth for grace. He always held them perfectly in tension and perfectly in balance. He ministered the truth to people in a gracious, gracious way. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is learning to imitate Christ's example in ministry. It's learning and imitating Christ's example in and through suffering. In the context of Jesus' death on the cross, 1 Peter tells us that Christ left us an example that we should follow in His steps. Disciples follow wherever He leads us. They surrender themselves to whatever He calls them to do. You think, what if, what if he calls me to go to be a missionary somewhere overseas? The darkest jungle of Africa or the, some other horrible place. Not that Africa is a horrible place. I didn't mean that. But it's something that to us would be so, oh, I couldn't handle that. And you know, the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't grab you and say, you're a brand new believer and just throw you into something they're completely unused to and unprepared for. He takes you from one thing to the next thing and every situation he puts you in is preparing you and training you and building you up and strengthening you for the next thing. Two years ago, my friend Rod said to me, you know what else? You're going through some hard times right now, but God is just getting you ready for the next thing. I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I discovered it happened to be Noble Park would be the next thing. And he was. He was preparing me in the struggles I had over there to deal with different struggles here. And this congregation, this time here, will prepare me for the next thing, if there is a next thing. 
But God is always working and taking us. And following Him means we are prepared by one circumstance to go to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And yeah, God might take you and put you in the darkest jungle of Africa to preach the gospel. But you know what? By the time you get there, it'll be exactly what you want, exactly what you need to do. It is be exactly what God has prepared you for, and you'll go there under His leadership and His guidance, and He'll give you everything you need when you get there, as you get there. It's following Jesus. It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just about coming to church and knowing you have a home in heaven and carrying on living any which way you like. That is not biblical Christianity. One of the tragedies of the end of the last century is so many men in wealthy, prosperous churches spent a great deal of time fine-tuning and sharpening their doctrinal statement to get it absolutely just right and just so and miss the major point of doing what it is that we're here to do, which is to make disciples and preach the gospel and see others built up, to see the body of Christ growing up and mature in their faith. We can go one emphasis where all emphasis on just getting the truth just right. The other tragedy is the other way, where they spend so much time going out and doing, but they never learn the doctrines and the truths about why they were doing what they were doing. And they went out without preaching the gospel, just doing works of ministry. There's two ways a church has gone astray. But making disciples and being disciples is following Jesus both in his truth and in his works and his actions. It's learning what Jesus said. It's imitating what he did. It's going out at his, in obedience to his command. It's being a disciple and it's making other disciples. He calls us, number one, to come after him, to leave behind sin, turn the other way and follow him. He calls us to deny ourselves, choose his will over ours. He calls us to take up our cross daily, to put to death those sinful issues and habits in our life that hinder our relationship with him. He calls us to follow him. Number five, he calls us to be willing to lose our life for his sake and the sake of the gospel. That's the big one. And Paul was in prison. He said, I don't know what's better, to die and be with Christ or stay here for your benefit. He was willing to go and lay down his life, to be poured out, as he says in 2 Timothy, like a drink offering. It's being willing, number six, to bear the reproach for Jesus' name and words. That, folks, is coming to us soon. When the world we live in, in Australia, pushes aside what God's will and God's purpose about marriage and starts to push against the church and force Christians to do things that they cannot do according to their conscience, standing up and saying, you know what? I'm willing to bear the reproach for the sake of Jesus' name and His words. It's loving Christ far beyond and above all others. He who does not hate his father, his mother, his sister, his brother, his children, and so on, even his own life, You'll have a tough time being my disciple. Is that what he said? No, he said, you cannot be my disciple. It's loving Christ beyond all else. If my love for Heather is greater than my love for Jesus, I commit idolatry by loving her because I've put her above Christ. And Jesus says, if you don't love me more than you love your wife, your family, your kids, yourself even, you cannot be my disciple.
It's surrendering all our possessions for the sake and the cause of Christ. It's counting the cost to follow Christ, number nine. It's discernment that we're not misled by false teachers and false Christs. It's enduring tribulation for the sake of Jesus' name and Jesus' words. Remember that question I asked you at the very beginning? If I would ask you, how many of you here are disciples of Jesus Christ? How many of us could put up our hands? Again, it's a heavy, I know. I've been asking myself the same question all week. When I read what Jesus says, am I able to say, you know what, yeah, I deny myself. Yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm putting to death sin in my life. Yeah, you know what, I'm following Jesus. And I kind of go, oh, Lord, I just I've, I fail so quickly and so easily. But the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not entirely dependent on us to strive and work really hard to get there. It's dependent on us to respond to that call, to say, yeah, Lord, I want to do that. I'm going to go where you're going to lead me. And it's God working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's working in us to give us that desire that's willing to go the next step, to follow behind Christ. Even as we see Him walking and way up at the head, we see a cross on a hill. It's the grace of God working in us. It's trusting Christ that every step we take will bring glory to Him, even it leads to my death. Because of the Reformation anniversary and so on. I watched a lot of movies um, just looking at the stories of men. Uh, not a lot. There's a few. Um, Wycliffe was one. Tyndale was another one. Uh, the movie about Luther in the end where his friend is burned at the stake for his, his uh, testimony for Christ. I found myself a little bit morbidly wondering, you know, Lord, if the day came and they tied me to a stake and piled up firewood and lit the match, what would I do? And listen, brothers and sisters, in years gone by, we would have said, oh, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. It's just nowhere near us. You know, that, that we, we enjoy such a comfortable, wonderful world and life. But brothers and sisters in Christ, that day isn't so far away anymore. No, I don't want to be the bearer of doom and gloom. I want to face us with the reality that this may be what comes Jesus promised us we would have difficulty and trouble in this life as we follow him. I want to call us to step out in faith and follow Jesus Christ in discipleship, to be true disciples of Christ so when that time comes, we will stand the test and follow Christ all the way to the end. On the back of that sheet, there are some questions for you to think about. Encourage you with all my heart. Go home this afternoon. If you've got some time by yourself, and sit down and work through those questions and answer them as honestly as you can for yourself. And spend some time in prayer considering before the Lord what is your state before Christ? Have we, like so many others, bought into the idea of cheap grace, faith without obedience, faith without following? Forgiveness, home in heaven, who cares about the rest? Because if we have, the stark reality is we do not know Jesus Christ. We are not his disciples. And there is some business that needs to be attended to. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing 
the benediction. Loving Father, this morning we give thanks for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, the words that he laid down for us in Scripture, speaking to disciples and the multitudes, the call he placed before us is a hard one, Father. Father, we know that the grace that saved us is the same grace that will enable us to carry on to walk behind Jesus, to deny ourselves, even when we live in a world that is absolutely determined to have everything they want for themselves. Father, it is your grace that will enable us to take up our cross and put to death those things that hinder our relationship with you, to put to death sin, to put to death the thinking and the mindset of the world and to follow behind Jesus. Father, we ask you for help this morning, that we would be a people of God that know the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, know his teachings, that see the way he walked, the way he lived, the way he suffered, and the way he died. And Father, as Peter calls us to, to follow in his steps, to follow his example. Father, Paul said he daily filled up in his flesh what was lacking of the sufferings of Christ. That another generation, another group of people would see the sufferings of Christ in Paul. And Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, this morning as a people of God that we would be just like that. That the world around us might see the truth of the sufferings of Christ even in us. Father, God, I plead with you that you would do a work in each of us. Father, bring us on our knees before you to consider our own lives, to ask ourselves the hard question, and to cry out to you for help. Father, bring to mind, bring to light in each of our hearts sin that needs to be confessed, and forsaken and put to death that we might have a sweeter relationship with the Lord Jesus. Father, I plead with you for help this day. Lord, work in my life that I might follow you more fully and more faithfully. Father, thank you again for a time in the Word of God this morning. Father, we ask you for your blessing on this church. We plead with you, O God, that you would do a work amongst us, that we would be faithful to the truth, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ to the very end. Father, for the young people that are out in the Sunday school classes learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, learning about what it means to follow him, Father, we pray that you would give them the simple understanding of the beautiful truths of the love of God and the grace of God, and sins forgiven. Father, we ask you for these things, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.